song which exemplify what we're going to learn this morning in Exodus 26. Instead of uh, kind of breaking this up, I'm going to read the whole passage of Exodus 26, and you can follow along as I do that, and then we'll get into our, our sermon. But as the song mentioned, this is a wonderful illustration, the tabernacle of the Lord walking with his people again and dwelling among us. Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops ye shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And ye shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Ye shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle. Twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver shall you make under the twenty frames. <laughs> two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames. And there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath joined at the top at the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them, they shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of purple and blue, excuse me, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold. 
with the hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Father, give us aid as we listen to your word and hear it preached in our presence. May the spirit of Christ himself illuminate your word to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so maybe you engineering folks love that chapter. Maybe everybody else doesn't. Uh, I'm not surprised that there are some dry eyes in this chapter. Uh, notably, there are some chapters in the Bible which are emotionally effective, right? We could probably think of some favorite chapters in the Bible where we think that is where I want to go, where I want to get hope, or when I want to get convicted of sin, or whatever it may be. Romans 8, maybe. John 11, you know, understanding, seeing Jesus wept. Maybe even Genesis 45, when Joseph's tearful reunion comes to fruition with his brothers and his family. Does this text bring any tears? Is it emotionally gripping? It should be. There is a great reunion being spoken of here with the tabernacle. Granted, the details with which the tabernacle is spoken of is we might say, um, overwhelming. It's fairly easily broken up, and we might say, given our Western way of thinking, they ordered this wrongly, but the first 14 verses were about what? The curtains and the fabrics and the veils, really. Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 14 even said that there's gonna be on top of the one layer of fabric, uh, two other layers, so that there are series of layers, actually four layers total, with the very last layer being goat skins on top. I won't get into the other um, alternative translations of that. If you have a NASB or maybe a, a NIV, you might have a different translation there. Instead of goat skins, it might say dolphins or porpoises or sea cows. Those all might be true. The point of it is that there is a, a fine leather covering over the tabernacle that is going to withstand the tabernacle from dust storms and rain and so forth that they're going to encounter in the wilderness. But it was covered over. And so we have our first 14 verses being a, a section on the, the fabric itself. 15, basically almost to the end of the chapter, you have the frame, the frame itself. It's a box. It's, it's a rectangle. And of course, the frame is made of acacia wood. The acacia wood is covered in gold. And on the bottom of the frames, you, we would kind of just say this is the mud sill, right? Where, right below the frame would be a, a long frame of silver, which these golden boards would, would fall into. And they would fit these boards together probably in a dovetail pattern because they're not using nails or any mechanical work that way. And that's essentially the tabernacle in its construction. It's, it's wood, it's curtains, and then the sections there from 31 to 37. But there is something better, I should say, more important going on than, than the fine details itself. It is a reminder that the Lord is, once again, going to dwell with his people. 
Mike has done a great job on Sunday school classes talking about really the, the tragedy of the fall. Mankind and sin, we fell, and, and, and all the effects that come with the fall. All the effects that come with the fall. And it's a tragedy. And we should read Genesis 3 with some uh, emotional effect in our heart, just as we would read, I don't know, the latter end of Romans 8. We should be emotionally affected. We should also be emotionally affected when we read chapter 26 of Exodus. But whereas we would be saddened at the prospect that we are fallen and we are separated from God in Genesis 3, there is an emotional counterpart high here in chapter 26, where God is once again going to dwell among his people. He's going to be with his people. If you, if you strip away just for a second all the, the details, the blueprints, the later chapters of what's going to happen, and just take the picture itself, it is a, it's an amazing picture. God is not leaving his people to be alone, but to dwell with them again. That's the expectation we read as we read from Genesis 1 and on. When will this reunion happen, right? Israel's crying out from the slave land of Egypt, and Yahweh powerfully redeems them, and he says, build a tent. I'm coming. I'm going to dwell with you. So, I'm going to make some comments here, and these are going to be largely theological. Um, nothing will be too uh, specific to the verses that we read, but these are all theological conclusions we come from understanding what the tabernacle means, what its purpose is, what its design is for. The first is this. And this is plain, but it is the tabernacle signifies God's dwelling with his people. Okay? I know you guys know that already. Bear with me. The tabernacle signifies God is going to once again dwell with his people. And we have said earlier, the, the tabernacle is a portable Sinai event. What happened on Sinai, Mount Sinai, where Moses was called up and, and the people were called up to worship God through sacrifice. They were made aware of their sin. They were, they were given assurance that their sin has been forgiven and they were made right with God and that God would speak to him, speak to them there. He would dine with them there and eat with them there. That all happens here at Sinai. That all happens here, excuse me, at the tabernacle. But in addition to that, the tabernacle shows that God dwells among his people as one of his people. He's dwelling among his people like one of them. He's in a tent. He's in a tent. There are thousands of tents strewn about this Sinai peninsula, this desert wilderness. And they all fairly look the same. But God is not saying, make for me a, a, a block structure, a stick frame home. Make for me a tent to signify, I will be among you in the manner that you are. <laughs> you live in tents. I'm going to come in a tent. Later we'll read in 2 Samuel, how when David has it pressed upon him and Lord doing the pressing, says, you're all living in these houses now, these cedar houses. It's time for me to have a house. I've traveled along with you in this tent. It's time to have a house. So he dwells with his people in the manner in which they dwell. They're, they're just sojourners. So he dwells with them as a fellow sojourner. They're inhabitants of Canaan, and he dwells with them as a permanent inhabitant of Canaan. And we don't have to go much further to understand, wow, wow, that, that really is true. Here we are, flesh and blood. What is another way God will show that he will dwell with us? He will take on flesh and blood and he will be with us 
as we are. It's a wonderful movement in Scripture from God accommodating to our weaknesses to get the inferior party, us, to believe he really wants to dwell with us. It would almost be like, well, to use a very crude illustration, some of my kids pretending to be a dog so that they can play with little Lukey. They're, they're condescending to him to be something they are not so that Lukey can feel included, right? Or parents might do the same thing. Pretend to be a Paw Patrol dog to play with their Paw Patrol addicted kids. Okay? But here, God is accommodating himself, undergoing no change in himself, but accommodating us by dwelling in a tent, although he's a glorious Lord, a powerful royal king. And he says, I will dwell in a tent because you guys are intense. The, we, we see this as we play out from, from the tabernacle to the temple and then to the incarnation of Christ. The, the switch is, is interesting in in glory, in the new heavens and new earth, no longer can we say God is accommodating himself to dwell with us, but he changes us so that we would dwell with him. He's accommodating in the temple, the tabernacle, in the incarnation, but in glory, in the new heavens and new earth, we will be changed so that we, an infinite, a, excuse me, a finite person will be able to enjoy, appreciate the infinite being of God. So the tabernacle signifies God is dwelling with his people as one of his people. Next, the tabernacle shows God's way for sinners. How can sinners and God come together again? The tabernacle communicates God's way for sinners. If you consider the whole tent, I know we don't have every piece of furniture in the tent talked about so far. Last week, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And we also talked about the, the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstand in, in, the, in the holy place. Later, we'll talk about the bronze altar. As you can see, that's in chapter 27. We'll talk about the ark of incense in the holy place and, and other things. But all this to say, there, there are sections of this tabernacle, of this religious building. And the tabernacle shows it's God's way for sinners to get to him. So just to cheat a little bit into chapter 27, you have there the bronze altar. And the bronze altar is the very first thing placed past the doorway when, as you enter in the courtyard of the tabernacle. So you have a little cube, which is the most holy place. You have then the rectangle of the holy place. And then all around that primary holy place, you have the, tab you have the tabernacle courtyard. And in the tabernacle courtyard, the very first thing, the very first thing you have is the bronze altar where the Jew, the, the sinful Jew, would come and put little fluffy lamb on the altar to make atonement for their sin. And so the Jew comes to God through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. And then, no, the Jew would go no further. It's the, the priest is up, to the, is up to the rest, right? But the priest would then go into the holy place. He would, he would even dine with Yahweh with the, with the bread. He'd have the candle... Um, the lampstand there. And even once a year, he'd go into the most holy place to dwell where Yahweh is on behalf of the people. So the people can only come so far. But the priests who represent the people go all the way in, into the very holy place of God to be with him. And that's how they go from being outside of God to being in God being away from him and far off to being with him. Of course, the New Testament makes clear Jesus is the true tabernacle. John 1 says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He tented 
He dwelt among us. And of course, no one comes to the Father but through Christ. So Jesus goes into the holy places on our behalf and leads us into a place we are not in and of ourselves able to go. And he goes, as he is a, a true Jew, united with his people, representing his people, as he goes, we kind of follow in his train. So even though we are actually not with him, we are with him. Hebrews 9 says it this way, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, so not the temple rebuilt necessarily, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So Jesus goes all the way to the Father, kind of chained with us to go and represent us so that the believer can say, as Jesus goes to the Father, I go with him. I go to the Father. Now, this brings up a really interesting thing, and we can't exhaust this, but we can tease it out just a little bit. Turn to, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. There are some passages where if it wasn't written by an apostle or a ambassador of Christ in the New Testament, recorded and inspired, we, we wouldn't even think this way almost, you know? But, but we are then also then told, we are told to think this way because of how the Bible talks about itself. So it says in, in Hebrews 9, 24, that Christ has entered into the into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And this is what it is saying, that heaven is essentially the holy of holies. Heaven is the holy of holies. Heaven is where God dwells. The holy of holies is where God dwells. And the tabernacle being like heaven, like, shows how we get to heaven or how we get into the holy of holies. So, follow along as I read uh, Hebrews 9, 1 to 10. In the first, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered in all, on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And of course, when the writer says that, you think, are you kidding? Like, that's, that's gold, uh, figuratively and literally, but like, that's amazing stuff. Let's learn about that. He goes, we can't talk about that right now. Let me move on, verse, 20, verse six. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, perform, performing their ritual duties, but into the second that is the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now please listen here. By this, so by this, meaning by the priest going into the holy place, most holy place, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered 
that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Real quickly go back to eight. The Holy Spirit is speaking, saying that the way into the holy places, the holy place and the most holy place, is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, many of your minds are probably already going there. Christ is crucified. And what happens in the temple? What is ripped from top to bottom? The veil. Showing access to the most restrictive cube on the planet, right? The holy place is a cube, and it is the dwelling place of God. And now the, the thick tapestry curtain has been ripped apart. Full access. Full access to the presence of God. But this is the real interesting thing. And, and honestly, I think it's amazing. Going back to what we've said earlier about Christ going into the heavens, the of God on our behalf, what we're learning here is that the Holy of Holies is heaven. And, and, the, and the movement of history is going towards heaven so that the heavens, the new heavens, the new earth are symbolic for the Holy of Holies. Mysteriously, the Holy of Holies signifies the age to come. The holy place as verse 9 says, implies the present age. So we live in a holy place moment. Heaven is the most holy place moment, which all of his people will go to at some point. <coughs> now, the author of Hebrews is making this claim, and you're thinking, that's weird. But you think about it. it it's not that far-fetched. What is heaven but dwelling with God in sinlessness, perfect communion with God? That is heaven. That is the holy place, most holy place. We won't read the chapter, but if you were to flip over to Revelation 21, you have a, another heavenly vision. In fact, if you wanted a, a fun study, just just thread a needle through all the heavenly visions of Scripture and, and see what you'll find and what commonalities you'll find. But in Revelation 21, we have another heavenly vision. John sees the bride, a.k.a. the wife of the Lamb, a.k.a. the holy city, also called the New Jerusalem, coming down to dwell on earth, so to speak, although it's ginormously bigger than any temple. And it is, of course, a, a perfect cube. It is made of costly stones and gold. And, and Revelation 21 says, but there's no temple. And there's a reason for that. It's because the heavenly Jerusalem is the temple. It is a city temple where there are no more restrictions or curtains or, or prohibitions on access to God. It is all equal access to God. It is, no, there is no temple because one, the holy city is the temple and also because it says the Lord is the temple. You have this onion layer imagery going on where John just stacks up metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor. But the point of Revelation 21 is that all of new creation is the holy of holies. Heaven is the holy of holies. The perfect enjoyment and sweet communion with God. And the tabernacle shows that the, holy, the most holy place, we have access into the most holy place through Jesus. Through Jesus. Not only architecturally, but also chronologically, this plays out, says the author of Hebrews and, and the author of Revelation, John. Okay, so the tabernacle signifies God's dwelling place with man. The tabernacle communicates God's way for sinners to God. And then lastly, 
the tabernacle's aesthetic and materials communicate God's presence. Now we get into a little bit of the details here. And this would be akin to those little gospel bracelets the kids make at VBS. You know, green means this and the red means blood and whatever. I, I really don't know any else. I never made any of those. But you probably know what I'm referring to. The materials, the colors, they all matter. They all matter. The metals, as you will see here, are gold, silver, and bronze. And the finest of metals belong to the closest proximity to God. And the farther away they are from God, the less, well, the more inferior the metals are. So gold is in the most holy place and the holy place. Silver is just used as basically a base for the, for the tabernacle. Bronze for the bronze altar farthest away. And so there is a, there is a kind of radiating out thought. This not only goes for the metals, but also the colors. Gold is a sign of royalty. Always used in scripture as godlike splendor. It's a sign of royalty. Silver, probably referring to atonement cost. Atonement cost. The, the cost for... Um, what the, what the coins are made out of and what must, paid for atone, must be paid for atonement. Bronze is associated with the altar. So bronze is associated with sacrifice, wrath, God's wrath against sin, and atonement for sin, satisfaction for sin. The colors themselves, you have, you have quite a bit. You have at first here, in 626.1, you have fine twined linen, which would be white. That, that it would be white. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. Again, we're going to ask, where, where are they going to get this? They got it from Egypt. We, we still today talk about Egyptian linen. Thread, thread count, a thousand or seven hundred or whatever it is, I don't know. But we have here them using Egyptian fine linen, so they have curtains made of white and blue and purple and scarlet. Unlike today, there are no, there really were no synthetic materials bit back then. How do you get, how do you get a scarlet curtain? Where do you get purple from? These would be natural dyes they would harness and receive from nature. And so colors actually in the ancient world had an association with something in nature. As I was doing my study, I, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. But there would be people who would harvest snails. And snails would produce a very, very rare dye. And from that dye, they would color the curtains. And they'd be a snail farmer for the glory of God. <laughs> but they would reach, they, they would get these colors by harvesting whatever it may be in nature. So, blue, so the colors actually meant something for them. They didn't just think, oh, I'll just Xerox out a copy of whatever and pick it out on my color wheel. No, the colors meant something. The, the white would refer to purity a spotlessness, a flawlessness, a purity. The blue, purple, and scarlet, they always refer to royalty because only rich, royal people can afford colorful curtains. And so you have this picture here of, of God dwelling with, that, with these people, but he's not just a God, he's a wealthy God. And he's not just wealthy, he's, he's royalty. And you have the, a wonderful divine king dwelling with these little poor slaves. Some have gone even further to say the blue, since we know the tabernacle is so associated with Christ, some even say, okay, the white refers to Christ's holiness. The blue refers to Christ being 
uh, coming from heaven, his heavenly origin. The purple refers to his royalty, and as you all know, he had a purple robe on at the cross. The scarlet refers to his blood, and they almost have their own little gospel bracelet from VBS. But here, we cannot deny the fact that these colors and this tapestry and embroidered work refers to God's beauty, that he is a beautiful, wonderful God, holy God. And he's dwelling with rather ordinary people. Lastly, we see in this aesthetic, cherubim. Cherubim. We kind of touched on them last week. They're always found in scripture close to God's dwelling place. We had them in the Ark of the Covenant, right? The atonement lid. We, we are reminded that in Eden, they're there stationed to protect the trespassers who would come back into the garden and eat from the tree of life. They're there in Ezekiel's vision in the, in the presence of God and, and they're inhabitants and guardians of God's presence. As if God needs guardians, but they are inhabitants and guardians of God's presence. And they are described in scripture as a four-faced creature. A four-faced creature. The lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man. Some commentators say then the lion as the greatest of wild beasts, the ox the greatest of the domestic beasts, the eagle the greatest of all flying birds, and man the greatest of all creatures altogether. And the cherubim have this cube head. They don't have to turn their head. They see all. There's no getting past them if you want to try to get back into that Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. But the cherubim were there, and what the cherubim would communicate to anybody in the vicinity and seeing that, would, it would be, God is near. Don't come here. God is nearby. Don't come over here. No trespassing. You are disqualified from being in this presence. And so, in this sense, the, the tabernacle is a reminder of Eden. There are palm trees embroidered, ter, uh, fruit and cherubim embroidered on all these fabrics. And it would remind them of their tragedy fall in the Garden of Eden. And it would remind them also, it should, how we long to get back to God. How the fall has, has severed relationship between God and man and put a divider, a curtain between God and man, the cherubim would say, don't come near here and remind them that they are away from God. And although they are away from God, God in his grace still desires to be with them. And interestingly enough, just to kind of sew this all together, no, no pun intended, the inner layers of this tent would be invisible because what was on the outside? Porpoise skins or goat skins, sea cow, manatee skins, whatever they might be, it was leather. It was rather plain looking. It was just leather, you know? But from the inside of the tabernacle, you could see the beauty. From the outside, it looked like a, a bigger tent. Of course, you had the courtyard. You knew what was going on, but it looked rather plain. God's presence looked rather plain. Only from the inside could you see the cherubim. You're, you could see it from on the walls. And by the way, the tabernacle, about this size, 45 feet long approximately, you know, it wasn't a huge building. And they would have this, the, the glow of the, the lamp illuminating inside the tabernacle. You'd have these cherubim on on the tapestry it would be frightful it would be frightful as a priest to go in there being reminded so often i am in the presence of god now just a couple things to walk away with 
One, God's hidden beauty. God's hidden beauty. As we said, he, the, the tabernacle from the outside looked rather plain. It was bigger than most tents. But it was just a tent. You couldn't see the gold frame because it was overcovered with the, with the curtains and the sea cow skins and all that stuff. But from inside, you saw what it was for what it was. A beautiful home for God. How do you see God? How do you view him? How do you esteem him? Maybe you see him from afar, you think, he's so-so. There's not much about God. I've seen God's people. They're rather so-so as well. In fact, they're not even the nicest people. We ask ourselves, how do I view God? How do I view God? Is he marvelous? Is he impressive? It could be that he's not because you're far from him. See God from afar and you think, there's nothing there. I'm getting along just fine in my life without God. You get near God. You get in the tabernacle and you just have a, you just have a glimmer of what he's really like. Beautiful in holiness. The one close to God sees God as beautiful. The one far from God says, there's not much there. I don't need him. That's not a slight against God. That's a slight against us who would so lowly view God as nothing because he dwells in a sea cow tent and he's on in some royal splendor. God, this sounds controversial. It's not, I'm not trying to be a hot take. God can never impress a man. It doesn't matter what God does. He can raise someone from the dead and someone has a chance to say, bah, it wasn't anything. We are so embroiled in sin, we see miracle after miracle after glorious miracle and say, I've seen it at the circus. That's how we think. That's how we view God. Those who are close to God see him as beautiful. The king in his beauty, as Isaiah 30 would say. The king in his beauty. Just imagine... You're tra just for five seconds, you're trading vocations with an Israelite priest, okay? And, and you've, you've taken the time machine phone booth back into Sinai. And you have become a priest and you are allowed access. Let's say you're not even a priest. You're the high priest. You're Aaron. And you are able to go into the holy place and even once a year go into the most holy place, you would see that area and say, this is marvelous. This does, the outside does no justice to the inside beauty of where God resides. And imagine, you know, you go, you do your duty, you make sacrifices, and, and you're walking around the rest of Joe Benjamin, Israelite, and they, they heap scorn upon the tabernacle. They think, why do we have to keep taking this thing down every few days? This thing is such a piece of work. It is laborious. It's hard. And I'm frankly tired of the Shekinah glory really coming out of it. That's gotten old. And if you're a priest, you would say to Joe Benjamin, you have no idea. You think that thing looks plain and boring and ordinary? <coughs> Get inside and you will see it for what it really is. Beauty. You have the same call. There is a world of people 
who don't view God as glorious, beautiful, and gracious. And you who have seen God must say to them, you need new eyes. You need new eyes. By God's grace, I've seen him. And I want to tell you, you are missing out on the most glorious person ever. And then lastly, we mentioned it before, in some ways this tent was fairly common and fairly different. It was common in that God dwelt in a tent, just like his people dwelt in tents. In, in fact, the furniture of this tent was furniture similar to, not exactly the same, but similar to what every single tent would have. Every single tent would have a grill. Yes, a barbecue, somewhere to cook the food. Just like the altar in the tabernacle. Other tents would have a source of light. Other tents would have a table for meals. This, in some sense, was a table very much like every other, or tent, much like any other tent, but radically different because this is the king's tent. This is not anybody's tent. This is Aaron's, Moses's, or some random person from Issachar. This is God's tent. And it is made holy because God dwells there. From the outside, it looked rather similar. From the inside, it showed its true character. And again, just to go back to what we mentioned earlier, this shows the great lengths to which God says, I will come and dwell among you. I will even look like you. I will have a home like you. I will be like you in some degree, in some degree. You know, we, there was the Super Bowl ad. Was that just last week? The He Gets Us ad. It is so disappointing when someone who wants to do good for Jesus makes him look so poor. There's a lot of things wrong with that ad. I'll just say one thing. They didn't do justice to how good Jesus is. Jesus doesn't just come and wash feet. He doesn't just come and tolerate us or accept us. He doesn't just come where we are and express love to say, hey, no one else loves you, but I love you. That's a very impotent savior. The fact is, it's not a savior. It's just a pal, a friend. The problem with that ad, and, and of course the thought of many of us, is that it's hard to categorize the goodness of Christ and portray him for as good as he really is. He doesn't just come to dwell among us and do some good deeds and acts of charity to us. He dwells among us to change us out of the position we're currently in. Oh, how shameful it is for someone to think, oh, Jesus will come and be with me. He will be with you but he will necessitate change in you. He won't just leave you there and wash your feet. Your feet are going to get dirty again. He brings permanent change. He takes you from outside the courtyard into the courtyard, past the holy place, into the very presence of God himself. And he does that not by just chaining you along, although we do that by union with him, but by radically changing you to have an enhanced, glorified body to actually dwell where you should not dwell. Mike has mentioned kind of a highfalutin term lately, metaphysics. We need 
as sinners a metaphysical change. We need a change in our being. We can't just have our feet clean. We need a new heart. We need a new mind. We need a glorified body, a ontological change so that what we are not able to bear with, namely the glory of God, we are by the blood of Christ who washes all away our sin and makes us pure and white as snow. So we are convinced of these two things. One, God is great. He is great and we are far from him due to his own holiness and our own sin. And unless we undergo a radical change, we cannot be in his presence. But while everyone needs to be convinced of that, everyone also should be convinced of this, and the Christian is already convinced of this. Though God is far away, he has come near to us in Christ and internally and comprehensively changed us to dwell with him. And this we will do when that new Jerusalem, that holy city, comes down and God's dwelling place is with man one more time, but one also final time for eternity. Let's pray. Glorious God, to you we fall short describing your great beauty and glory your being, your three-in-one, Father, Son, and Spirit. We fall radically, radically short of comprehending, understanding, much less ascribing glory to you. But what you have taught us, we know is true. You are a beautiful God, a royal king who condescends to us by grace to bring us up out of our miry pit and bog to live on high with you. May that feed our heart this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.